Halloween memories of going out at, at night and I was a big Hammer Horror fan and so therefore I loved all the ghosties and all that kind of stuff 
but I didn't really understand its ancient origins and link it with the ancestors. You saw it as a different thing. It's only when I got as a teenager that you begin to explore the tradition and you begin to work out what actually is it. This is where we've been going for many years to do our ancestor sowing. different from the Halloween culture that's associated with it now. It's more about those you've, you've lost, who've moved over, going back generations upon generations upon generations of our clan, of our people, of our families. So when we honour Samhain, we're honouring the ancestors of our entire lineage. A time for introspection, a time for reflection. And also that we're going to join that stream of the ancestors when we die, and all our descendants, they will die too. And it's like a stream that moves in the now. So although we honour the ancestors of the past, they live within us in the now. They resonate within us who we are. your eyes you are free as the wind cold like the moon child of the dawn softly return to fields of dreams beyond the veil of light you are a tiny whisper of life on the wings of nature's majestic flight to begin again all things must come to and change close the doorway to the light release your last breath in perpetual circles spinning towards summer's end sunset let it go let it go let it go and welcome this time of darkness Yeah. 
Hello again, and welcome to the Valkyrie Underground. Thank you so much for joining me, your host, Urban Jungle Girl, on the Might is Right Network at mightisright.net. This is a special broadcast. Sawin, this is Halloween, and Sawin, not Sam Hain, as the spelling looks, and as the Christ insane love to call it, but Sawin. Today is Freya Day, October the 31st. 2014. Between the podcasts, Midas Wright streams 24 hours a day, some of the best white racialist material and music out there. Moon Day is the Valkyrie Underground with me, your host, Urban Jungle Girl. Tears Day is Berserker Bastion with Ruthless Rob. Wooden's Day is the Strategy Session with Norman and My Violent Heart. Thursday is the Might is Right Power Hour with Bill Rise. And Sunday is Open Lines. Well, this is going to be a fun show, and uh, it's probably going to go long, and I will not be taking any calls, but uh, I think you'll find this very interesting. We need to know uh, the holidays that were stolen from our people, and Samhain is the celebration that is occurring now and was created by the Celtic people. So I'm going to go right into this. Samhain is considered to be the season of death and renewal. As the nights lengthen and the leaves take on their autumn colors, many of our cities prepare for a seasonal festival dominated by dark and frightening imagery. Ghosts, skeletons, hags, nocturnal creatures such as cats and bats, and grinning monster faces peer out at us from shop windows. Much of it is just commercialism, yet there is no denying that the atmosphere of the holiday still has a profound effect on the modern psyche. As we can see from the spontaneous and outrageous of Halloween's parades, the creative expressions of death-related themes, and the general surge of mischief-making. All these customs, however, are a diffuse reflection of the beliefs and practices of the Celtic populations of Europe, for whom this feast was a crucial turning point in the flow of time. The earliest record we have of the festival of Samhain in the Celtic world comes from the Coligny calendar, a native Celtic lunar calendar inscribed on bronze tablets and discovered in eastern France a hundred years ago. The calendar, dated through epigraphic evidence to the first century of the Common Era, is written in the Latin alphabet and was found in conjunction with a Roman-style statue identified by some writers as Apollo, by others as Mars. But the language used is Gaulish, and the dating system itself bears little resemblance to Roman models, implying that it represents the survival of an indigenous tradition maintained by native clergy. The calendar, its year consists of 12 regularly recurring months that fall naturally into two groups, one headed by the month that is labeled Samon for Simonius, and the other by the month Giamon for Giamonius, and that the names of these two months are clearly related to the terms Samus, which means summer, and Guillemus, winter. This is one of the very few dates in the calendar that is given a specific name, testifying to the importance as a festival. And since Simone is obviously the origin of the modern name Samhain, it is responsible to equate the Trinoxian, I can't say this word, Trinoxian, Samunai, with the feast that is still one of the most important dates in the Celtic ritual year. 
We shall note, however, that since the Caligny calendar gives no indication of how its months relate to those of the Roman calendar, we have no conclusive evidence that would allow us to fit it into the framework of our own year. And scholars are still very much divided on the issue. The most confusing element, of course, is that Samon refers to summer, and so would naturally lead one to think that a month with that name would head the summer half of the year, and many of the earlier interpretations of the Caligny calendar take this for granted. In living Celtic tradition, however, the festival of Samhain, despite its name, is definitely the beginning of winter. Though such evidence doesn't necessarily exclude the possibility that continental druids used a completely different terminology, many scholars now accept the authority of the living tradition and place the Simonius month in October slash November. What does the name of the festival mean, however? Here again we run into controversy. The traditional interpretation, first put forward in the medieval glossaries and still held by native speakers, is that it means, quote, summer's end, end quote, being a combination of psalm, S-A-M-H, summer, and fun, ending concealment, quote, unquote. This is obviously a folk etymology, since we know that the earliest form of the word, samonai, had a different structure, but its importance to the living tradition should make us wary of dismissing it too lightly. Although philologists have been unable to find a plausible Indo-European explanation for a suffix oni, O-N-I, meaning end of. The suffix, by the way, occurs in at least three of the other Cologne months. This is not conclusive in itself. There are quite a few other derivational suffixes attested in Old Celtic that resist an easy Indo-European etymology, although their meanings are uncontroversial. What should be kept in mind is that in the ritual context of the Celtic year, Samhain is strongly identified with the, quote, end or concealment, end quote, of summer, the light half of one year. In the modern Gaelic languages, the festival is called Samhain, Irish, Samhuin, Scots Gaelic, and Seuin, Manx. The night on which it begins and I'm not going to pronounce these Irish words correctly, so bear with me. Oichi Shamhana in Irish. Oichi Shamhana in <laughs> Scots Gaelic. Oichoni in Manx is the primary focus of the celebration. The Brythonic languages call the feast by the name meaning first of winter, borrowing the Latin term calenda, which designates the first day of a month but the beliefs and practices associated with it are consistent with what we find in the Gaelic countries and will help us discover a pan-Celtic theology of Samhain. The Cologne calendar's division of the year into two halves associated with summer and winter is still very strongly reflected in Celtic folk practice, where the yearly cycle consists of a dark half beginning on Samhain, November 1st, mirrored by a light half beginning on Beltane, May 1st. The rituals surrounding Samhain and Beltane are closely related to each other and make it clear that the two festivals are linked, but also that they deal with opposite energies within the unfolding of the year. What is explicit and active in one is implicit and dormant in the other, and vice versa. 
This is often expressed as the notion that what happens in our world at once becomes present in the other world. And it has even been suggested on this basis that Sawin's summary name was originally intended to designate the beginning of an other world summer. Whether this is plausible or not, it remains certain that while Sawin began one kind of yearly cycle, Beltane began another, and both could be construed as a kind of quote-unquote new year. In ancient Ireland, the High King inaugurated the year on Samhain for his household and symbolically for all of the people of Ireland with the famous ritual of Tara, but in nearby Yushnik, the sacred center held by the Druids in complementary opposition to Tara, it was on Beltane that the main ritual cycle was begun. In both cases, sacred fires were exhausted and relit, though this happened at sunset on Samhain and at dawn on Beltane. Beltane was a time of opening and expansion, Samhain a time of gathering in and shutting. And for herd owners like the Celts, this was expressed with particular vividness by the release of cattle into upland pastures on Beltane and their return to the safety of the buyers on Samhain. Which of these two dates, then, should we think of as primarily as Celtic New Year? Although both deal with the beginning of a cycle, Samhain begins it in darkness, and there is no doubt about the preeminence of darkness in Celtic tradition. In Bello Galaco, Julius Caesar notes that the Celts began their daily cycle with sunset. They define all amounts of time not by the number of days, but by the number of nights. They celebrate birthdays and the beginnings of months and years in such a way that the day is made to follow the night, and this is confirmed by later Celtic practices. Darkness comes before light because life appears in the darkness of the womb. All things have their beginning in the fertile chaos that is hidden from the rational mind. Thus the year begins with its dark half, holding the bright half in gestation as the seeds lie in apparent death underground although the forces of growth are already at work in otherworldly invisibility. The moment of, of death, the passing into the concealing darkness, it is itself the first step in the renewal of life. This association of death with fertility provided the theological background for a great number of end-of-harvest festivals celebrated by many cultures across Eurasia. Like Samhain, these festivals, which for example included the rituals of the Deity, which means ancestors in the Slavic countries, and the Vetrakovold festival in Scandinavia, linked the successful resumption of the agricultural cycle after a period of apparent winter death to the proportion of the human community's dead. The dead have passed away from the social concerns of this world to the primordial chaos of the other world, where all fertility has its roots but they are still bound to the living by ties of kinship. It was hoped that by strengthening these ties precisely when the natural cycle seemed to be passing through its own moment of death, the community of the living would be better able to profit from the energies of increase that led out of death back to life. Dead kin were the tribe's allies in the other world, making it certain that the creative forces deep within the land were being directed to serve the needs of the human community. They were, in Celtic terms, a humanizing factor within the Formorian realm. 
whatever the specific elements had been that determined the proper date of the end of harvest honoring of the dead in various places, by the ninth and 10th centuries, the unifying influence of the Church had led to concentrating the rituals on November 1st and November 2nd. The Roman Catholic Holy Day of All Saints, or All Hallows, was introduced in the year 609, but was originally celebrated on 13 May. In 835, Louis the Pious switched it to 1 November in the Carolingian Empire at the behest of Pope Gregory IX. However, from the testimony of Pseudo-Bebe, it is known that churches in what are now England and Germany were already celebrating all saints on 1 November at the beginning of the 8th century. Thus, Lewis merely made official the custom of celebrating it on 1 November. The first date was All Hallows when the most spiritually powerful of the Christian community's dead, the saints, were invoked to strengthen the living community in a way quite consistent with pre-Christian thought. The second date, All Souls, was added on, first as a Benedictine practice beginning circa 988, as an extension of this concept, enlarging it to include the dead of families and local communities. Under the mantle of the specifically Christian observances, however, older patterns of ancestor veneration were preserved. Most traditional Celtic communities maintain a year-round link of some sort with their departed, making them a part of all significant occurrences in the family, such as births, weddings, and funerals. In areas of the Irish Galtacht, it is still not unusual for a household to have a Siom Ra Thayar, or a western room, a section of the house, often just a nook or alcove, dedicated to the dead of the family. Objects that bring individual dead relatives to mind, old photographs, pipes, jewelry, etc., are placed on a shelf or a mantelpiece. And as one contemplates them, one faces the setting sun and the vastness of the Atlantic, the direction the dead follow in their journey to the other world. The rituals of Samhain, however, involved a more intense bonding with the dead, using the institution which in Celtic tradition was used to cement social links in a sacred and durable manner, the communal feast. Sharing food in a solemn context in the sight of gods and mortals placed common and mutual responsibilities on all participants. Inviting the dead to such a feast encouraged the living to remember and honor their ancestors, while the dead, in return, were encouraged to have an interest in the welfare of their living kin. On Samhain, the moment of the year's death, this world and the other world become equivalent to each other. Classificatory boundaries are removed from all categories. No barriers exist between the dead and the living, so both can authentically come together in one place to share a ritual feast. Individual Celtic communities have preserved a wealth of different customs related to the way this feast was actually celebrated. One can still discern some distorted elements of them in modern urban practices, such as Halloween parties or trick-or-treating. Most of the customs, however, fall into two broad patterns. According to the first, a certain amount of food was set aside for the exclusive consumption of the dead. The dead were believed to be present as invisible entities, Doors and windows were left unlocked to facilitate their coming into the house. 
In some cases, a specific type of food, usually cakes of some kind, and actually I've seen reference that they call them soul cakes, was made solely for the dead. In others, a portion of the same food that the living would eat was set aside for them. The most classic example of this pattern, which is also found in Ireland and Scotland, is the buind an anan. <laughs> I'm just slaughtering these words, which means food of the hosts of the dead, which is a custom in Brittany. The anion, the word appears to be the same as anwin, the Welsh otherworld. It is certainly a pre-Christian term, as the Massed hosts of ancestral spirits usually portrayed as hungry for substance from the world of the living. A large amount of food was set aside for their sole use and had to remain untouched by any living hand for the full duration of the ritual period. Eating the food of the dead, even if desperately hungry, was considered to be a dreadful sacrilege. It condemned one to becoming a hungry ghost after death barred from sharing the Samhain feast along with the rest of the Anaeon. It was, in effect, a particularly horrible form of excommunication. The other pattern of Samhain, custom on the contrary, encourages the recycling of the offered food into the community, thus strengthening social bonds. The most classic example of this second pattern is the Welsh Synod e Miru, which is the embassy of the dead custom. Although similar customs are found elsewhere in the Celtic and ex-Celtic world, here, while the wealthier members of the community put together lavish Samhain feasts for their households, the poor take on the collective identity of the community's dead and go from door to door to receive offerings in the name of the ancestors. At each house, they are given a portion of the food that has been set aside for the dead. Originally, the Senhaden would have been masked to abolish their mundane social roles and allow them to represent the dead more convincingly. To refuse food to the Senhaden for any reason at all was an act of impiety and would invite retaliation in the form of destruction of property. Retaliation that would go unpunished because of the holy nature of the ritual period. We can see here one of the origins of the trick aspect of our modern Halloween customs, although nowadays it has largely lost its moral dimension. The communal feast, of course, involves more than just food. The dead would not only have to be fed, they would have to be entertained. Games and pastimes associated with Samhain feasting vary a great deal from community to community, but they have certain themes in common. While the younger people engage in the ritualized games, the elders will be gossiping, reviewing all of the notable events of the past year for the benefit of the dead, who will then be encouraged to continue to take an interest in the affairs of the living. The games themselves, in many cases, seem to have specific links with the mythology of death and the afterlife. Many of them involve apples, in part, of course, because they are one of the last crops to be brought in and are thus easily available, but also as a reflection of the roles apples play in belief about death. In Irish tradition, the otherworld place where the dead gather at a feast is called Iamhain Ablach, which means paradise of apples, and its Welsh equivalent is Aphalon, 
Some of the Scottish games in this context make use of parallel ordeals by water and fire, the two main elements out of which the world is made. The water ordeal is the familiar bobbing of apples, while the fire ordeal involves trying to take a bite out of an apple attached to a hanging stick which also bears a lit candle. This seems to be a reference to myths about the ordeals faced by the dead on their journey to the other world, a body of beliefs we unfortunately know only through fragments, although the basic concept of the journey and the ordeals is well established. Sharing the experiences of the dead was yet another way of affirming the solidarity between the dead and the living and of aligning the powers of renewal in the other world with this world's needs. While the dead were brought closer to the living by the formal sharing of food, other offerings had to be made to the land spirits in reward for their cooperation during the harvest period and to replenish their creative energy as they prepared to enter into a new cycle. With Samhain, the period of quote-unquote truce that had begun on Lunasa was officially ended and the fruits of the soil, especially wild crops, could no longer be harvested with impunity. Well within living memory, children in Celtic communities were warned not to eat the late berries that might still be ripening at roadside bushes because, quote, the fairies or, quote, the devil had made them dangerous to consume. Having enabled the human community to survive by making the crops grow and by standing aside to let the harvest take place, the powers of the Formorian realm were now entitled to a gift of life, renewing blood. And Samhain was the season when the cattle that would not be kept through the winter were slaughtered. In historic times, the date of the slaughter has specifically been Martimas, November the 11th. Certainly in part because of the name of the saint suggested the Gaelic word mart, quote, cattle marked for slaughter. Renewing social skills with the dead and feeding the land spirits were both rituals means of ensuring a safe future, while Samhain and the phenomena of death which it celebrated was obviously the end of a cycle, it was more importantly the start of a new one, because all true novelty springs from the chaotic freedom and vitality of the other world. A new cycle could be inaugurated only by dissolving all of the structures of the old one just as the moment of death dissolves our identity in this world, allowing the fresh energies of the other world to impel us towards new life. This meant that, as happens in the feasts of the renewal of many different cultures, certain types of social disorder were actively encouraged during the period of the festival because they promoted the renewing influence of the other world at the point in the yearly cycle where it would be most beneficial. The structures that had been dissolved had to be recreated in order to channel the new energy from the other world to the desired directions. While local communities would have had their own diverse methods of accomplishing this ritually, often through the extinguishing and rekindling of household fires, more elaborate ceremonies were conducted by religious specialists at the sacred centers of a territory in the name of the entire population. In pre-Christian Ireland, the ritual of Tara focused on the high king in his role as linchpin of the social order was the means for recreating the world on Samhain. The Middle Irish text entitled Sigud Taleg Tamra, 
or the settling of the household of Terra, describes the essentials of the ritual and relates some of the mythology that explains its symbolism, albeit with a somewhat Christianized background. While Geoffrey Keating, the 17th century encyclopedist of traditional Irish lore, provides us with additional explanations of some of the elements. Since the land itself as a ritual entity was conceived of as a square, so was Terra, for the purposes of this ceremony seen as a four-sided space. Each of the directions was associated with one of the three functional classes of society and with the divinity who was seen as the ruler of that function. The south being devoted specifically to the power of the land and to the goddess who gave energy to the exercise of the social functions. The high king occupied the center of the ritual area, while around him, strictly ordered by social rank, were representatives of the four provinces. Thus, when the new year actually dawned, the magical heart of Ireland would contain a model for the entire social order of the country in miniature, engaged in the solemn feasting whereby all social links were strengthened and all parts of the country would then benefit from the influence of this ritual. The actual inception of the new cycle was signaled by the lighting of a fire, not at Terra, but at Tlaglacta, which symbolically represented the southern province of Munster within the High King's central realm. This was the place where Tlaca, the daughter of the mythological druid Mug Ruith, died after being raped by the, quote, sons of Simon Magus, end quote, who wanted to gain the knowledge and talents she had inherited from her father. And after giving birth to three sons from three different fathers, this myth is obviously garbed in its modern version, yet one can still discern it in the figure of the land goddess and her three functional consorts. The association of the festival with the preeminently female southern quarter may explain why in some Welsh and Scottish communities it is specified by custom that Salwyn ritual must be overseen by nine women, in contrast to the nine men who preside over Beltane. What of the role of the gods in this crucial turning point of the ritual year? Since virtually all our knowledge of detailed ritual practices among the Celts come from Christianized communities, references to divinities are, as one would expect, rare, and indirect. However, some of the stories preserved in both folklore and medieval literature seem relevant to the theology of this feast. Images such as that of the hero, Diarmot, killed by a boar after his romance with Fionn Mac Cumhale's wife, Crayine, or that of wild Murden, emerges from the forest with a herd of stags to kill his wife's lover, by piercing him with a pair of antlers, or that of Gwyn Apnud, the white son of Mistmaker, fighting with Gwenthir Ap Grendwal, the wrathful son of Hot, every Kala Mai Beltane, unto the day of judgment for the hand of their common love, Creadal Lad, and the notion of the Fianna living off the wilderness from Beltane to Sawin and indoors from Sawin to Beltane, all suggest a myth of certain divinities changing their status in relation to the land goddess in response to the change of seasons along the 
Selwyn-Beltane axis. The common denominator of these motifs seems to be the figure of the antlered god, now conveniently referred to as Cernunus, whose mythology has definite links to the stories of the Fianna and whose attributes symbolize seasonal change as well as the interface between nature and culture. Antlers are a seasonal phenomena. They drop off in winter and begin to reappear as velvet at winter's end, returning to full glory in the spring. In Scott's Gaelic terminology, the month immediately preceding Samhain is called Damgahar, or stag rut, because it is when stags clash with each other during the mating season. Shortly before losing their antlers, and the antlered god must undoubtedly lose his, which is why some Cernunos statues, like the one from St. Germain, apparently had holes for removable antlers. Our sense of the seasonal importance of this event in Celtic ritual symbolism is reinforced by the custom in southwestern Brittany of baking appropriately shaped cakes called cornigu, or little horns, to celebrate the coming of winter. From the many versions of the myth, one can deduce that the antlered god is separated from his goddess consort, who takes another lover during the light half of the year when he must live as a renunciate in the wilderness and wear his horns, but that with the coming of the dark season, his rival is eliminated and he can return to his consort's embrace in the other world, abandoning by the same token the horns of his cuckoldery. It is unlikely to be a coincidence that the Banag Samahana, the Sawin cake prepared specifically for the ritual made by the women who preside over the Sawin feast in parts of Gaelic Scotland, it is named after a cockold in the community. And we find echoes of the same motif as we often do at the other end of the Indo-European world in the ritual calendar of India, where on Diwali, the Feast of Lights, which is usually celebrated very close to Samhain, Lakshmi, the goddess of abundance and well-being, leaves her usual consort Vishnu, who falls asleep at this time, to return temporarily to her first husband, Kubera, the fat god of material riches. The land goddess, too, changes her appearance at this time. The fertile part of her retreats to the other world where she can join with her consort in beginning the creative work of the new yearly cycle. But in our world, only her Formorian aspect remains, making the land barren and hostile to human comfort. In the Scottish Highlands, this is the season of the ha, Gaelic Buera, the monstrous hag who wanders in the hills bringing bad weather, while in Wales we hear of the Hwadu-Wata, the tailless black sow who lurks menacingly in the darkness. Yet these are all aspects of the same being, the multiform provider on whom we all depend, who must, like all things, replenish herself through alternating periods of action and repose, and who touches, as we all must, the darkness and death to find the source of true renewal. Samhain in mythology. Irish mythology was originally a spoken tradition, but the tales were eventually written down by Christian monks in the Middle Ages, who are thought to have Christianized many of them. 
Well, I don't think there's any doubt about that. According to Irish mythology, Samhain, like Beltane, was a time when the doorways to the other world opened, allowing the spirits and the dead to come into our world. But while Beltane was a summer festival for the living, Samhain was essentially a festival of the dead. The boyhood deeds of Fionn say that the Sidhe, or the fairy mounds, or portals to the other world, were always open at Samhain. Like Beltane, Lugnadash, and Imblok, Samhain also involved great feasts. Mythology suggests that drinking alcohol was part of the feast, and it is noteworthy that every tale that features drunkenness is said to take place at Samhain. Several sites in Ireland are especially linked to Samhain. A host of otherworldly beings was said to emerge from Oignot, or the Cave of the Cats. Near Rathcrogan, in County Roscommon, each Samhain, the Hill of Ward, or Plakta, in County Meath, is thought to have been the site of a great Samhain gathering and bonfire. The Iron Age Ringfort is said to have been where the goddess or druid Tlacta died, giving birth to triplets that resulted from rape. Origins and Traditions of Samhain The original Celtic year consisted of four festivals, Imbolc on February the 1st, Beltane on May the 1st, Lugnasha on August the 1st, and Samhain on November 1st. For Celts, Samhain was a spiritual time, but with a lot of confusion thrown into the mix. Being between years or in transition, this usually fairly stable boundaries between other world and the human world become less secure, so that puka, banshees, fairies, and other spirits could come and go quite freely. There were also shapeshifters at large. This is where the dark side of Halloween originated. As the Beltane bonfires were lit on hilltops at Samhain, and there were rituals involving them, however, by the modern era, they only seem to have been common along Scotland's Highland Line, on the Isle of Man, in North and Mid Wales, and in parts of Ulster, heavily settled by Scots. M. Marion McNeil says that a force fire or need fire was once the usual way of lighting them, but notes that this gradually fell out of use. Likewise, only certain kinds of wood may once have been used, but later records show that many kinds of flammable material were burnt. It is suggested that the fires were of a kind of imaginative or sympathetic magic. They mimic the sun helping the powers of growth, and holding back the decay and darkness of winter. They also had served to symbolically, quote, burn up and destroy all harmful influences. Accounts from the 18th and 19th centuries suggest that the fires, as well as their smoke and ashes, were deemed to have protective and cleansing powers. In Moray, boys asked for bonfire fuel from each house in the village. When the fire was lit, one after another of the youths laid himself down on the ground as near to the fire as possible as to not be burned, and in such a position as he let the smoke roll over him. The others ran through the smoke and jumped over him. 
When the bonfire burnt down, they scattered the ashes, vying with each other who should scatter them most. Sometimes two bonfires would be built side by side, and the people, sometimes with their livestock, would walk between them as a cleansing ritual. The bones of slaughtered cattle were said to have been cast upon bonfires. In the pre-Christian Gaelic world, cattle were the main form of wealth and were the center of agricultural and pastoral life. People also took flames from the bonfire back to their homes. In northeastern Scotland, they carried burning fur around their fields to protect them, and in South Uist, they did likewise with burning turf. In some places, people doused their hearth fires at Sawin night. Each family then solemnly relit its hearth from the communal bonfire, thus bonding the families of the village together. In the 17th century, Goffrey Keating wrote the Druids of ancient Ireland would gather on Tlacta on Sawin night to kindle a sacred fire. From this, every bonfire in the land was lit, and from thence, every home in the land relit their hearth, which had been doused that night. However, his source is unknown, and there's some confusion as to whether or not that's, that's actually the case. At household festivities throughout the Gaelic regions and Wales, there were many rituals intended to divine the future of those gathered, especially with regard to death and marriage. Seasonal foods such as apples and nuts were often used in these rituals. Apples Samhain marked the end of the final harvest of the summer, and all apples had to have been picked by the time the day's feasting began. It was believed that on Samhain, the puka, Irish evil fairies, spat on any unharvested apples and made them inedible. Little People Gaelic tales are full of heroic warriors and mythical gods. They are also the origin of Halloween's and Ireland's preoccupation with the Little People. Academics have concluded that the Little People were originally the pagan gods of Ireland who lost their significance and metaphorically their stature when Christianity arrived. I think that's very interesting. Despite their reduced state, their retirement to the underworld as fairies, a memory of their magical powers held fast in the imagination of the people. Here lies the origin of Halloween's dark side. There are two main groups of fairies. The trooping fairies, who, for the most part, are friendly and have healing powers, and the solitary fairy, who causes mischief and is quick to anger. Leprechauns. The name leprechaun may have derived from the Irish Laeth Brogan, or shoemaker, although its origins may lie in Lochmar Mon, Irish for pygmy. These apparently aged, diminutive men are frequently to be found in an intoxicated state, caused by homebrew poteen. However, they never become so drunk that the hand which holds the hammer becomes unsteady and their shoemaker's work affected. Leprechauns have also become self-appointed guardians of ancient treasure left by the Danes when they marauded through Ireland, burying it in crocks or pots. This may be one reason why leprechauns tend to avoid contact with humans whom they regard as foolish, 
flighty and greedy creatures. If caught by a mortal, he will promise great wealth if allowed to go free. He carries two leather pouches. In one is a silver shilling, a magical coin that returns to the purse each time it is paid out. In the other, he carries a gold coin, which he uses to try and bribe his way out of difficult situations. This coin usually turns to leaves or ashes once the leprechaun has parted with it. However, you must never take your eye off him, for he can vanish in an instant. The leprechaun family appears split into two distinct groups, leprechaun and chloricon. Chloricon is spelled C-L-U-R-I-C-A-U-N-S. Chloricons may steal or borrow almost anything, creating mayhem in houses during the hours of darkness, raiding wine cellars and larders. They will also harness sheep, goats, dogs, and even domestic fowl and ride them throughout the country at night. Although the leprechaun has been described as Ireland's national fairy, this name was originally only used in the north, Lanester areas. Variations include Lorak Main, Lorakan, and Loraganhan. And I read that specifically for Bill Rice. <laughs> Uh, okay. Leprechauns, also a little bit more about them. There are female leprechauns, although they do seem to be quite few in number. Calling them lady leprechauns is to overlook their lack of social graces. Many leprechaun legends feature a robin. The most common of birds is a great friend of the little fella, so don't kill or trap robins, even accidentally, unless you're looking for some bad luck. The little people are great distillers, having been given the secret of whiskey making by the legendary Thuasta. Some say their tendency to overindulge in the homebrew is what makes them so belligerent and unpredictable and turns even the friendliest wee chap into an evil leprechaun. Leprechauns are very intelligent, as well as being great poets, athletes, philosophers, and musicians. They also are the accountants of the other world. Their reputation for miserliness is to some extent unfounded. They are, in fact, the Irish fairy's treasurer, and they take their responsibility seriously. The fairy most connected with the origin of Halloween is the puka, who is decidedly malevolent and capable of assuming any shape. The puka is particularly adept at taking animal shapes, especially horses, so riders beware on Halloween. Your speed may not be under your control. The Banshee is another fairy, always female, who warns of approaching death by letting loose a terrible, eerie wail, i.e. the Banshee scream, that is guaranteed to send a shiver down the spine of those who hear it. If you hear the cry of the Banshee of Ireland, you should look out for a funeral carriage pulled up by a headless horse. The origin of Halloween games, Celts looked to the future at Samhain and could see clues in the year ahead in the simplest things. Even peeling an apple could provide a clue about the name of a future husband or wife. Apples also featured in the ducking of apples. There was nothing particularly symbolic about the origin of Halloween games such as these. They are fun games in which all ages can participate, and apples were plentiful at this time of year. 
Many other games and rituals played out at Halloween had to do with courtship, among them the fortune-telling bowl of coal cannon. A ring and sometimes a thimble, too, were mixed into a large bowl of this warming, simple dish, which was placed in the middle of a table. Each person sitting around the table took a spoonful of the potato and cabbage mixture, dipping it into the well of melted butter at its center. The person who found the ring was sure to be married within a year. The thimble denoted life without love and marriage. The origin of Halloween trick-or-treating seems to have been a druid ritual of collecting eggs, nuts, and apples from the individual homes of the community. These offerings were meant to bring some protection from bad luck, such as damage to crops or livestock in the next year. Those that were miserly in their offerings were likely to have a trick played on them. These pranks were harmless enough. They were intended to cause confusion, i.e. changing the direction a gate opened, etc. The origin of the Halloween lantern. The traditional illumination for geysers and pranksters abroad in the night in some places was provided by turnips or mangle wurzels, W-U-R-Z-E-L-S, which were hollowed out to act as lanterns and often carved with grotesque faces to represent spirits or goblins. And I've seen some pictures of these turnips. They're huge. I've never seen turnips that big. But anyway, they may also have been used to protect oneself from harmful spirits. These were common in parts of Ireland and Scotland into the 20th century. They are also found in Somerset. In the 20th century, they spread to other parts of England and became generally known as jack-o'-lanterns. In modern times, pumpkins are used. They are considerably easier to carve and a lot bigger, too, but they are not native to Ireland. According to legend, the origin of the Halloween lantern can be found in the tale of a young smith called Jack O'Lantern, who made a pact with the devil during a gambling session. He managed to thwart the devil and extracted a promise from him that he would never take his soul. When he eventually died, Jack was refused entry into heaven on account of his drunken, lewd, and miserly ways. The devil, remembering his earlier promise, also refused to allow him into hell. So Jack was condemned to roam the dark hills and lanes of Ireland for eternity. His only possessions were a turnip with a gouged-out center and a burning coal thrown to him by the devil. He put the coal inside the turnip and lit his way through the dark countryside where he still wonders. Mumming and Guising Mumming and guising was part of the Samhain from at least the 16th century and was recorded in parts of Ireland, Scotland, Man, and Wales. It involved people going from house to house in costume or in disguise, usually reciting songs or verses in exchange for food. The costumes may have been a way of disguising oneself from the OSC, S.V. Paddle writes that they personify the old spirits of the winter who demanded reward in exchange for good fortune. McNeil suggests that the ancient festival included people in masks or costumes representing these spirits and that the modern costumes came from this. 
In Ireland, costumes were sometimes worn by those who went about before nightfall, collecting for the Samhain feast. In parts of southern Ireland during the 19th century, the geysers included a hobby horse known as the Larban, or white mare. A man covered in a white sheet and carrying a decorated horse skull representing the Larbahan would lead a group of youths blowing on cow horns from farm to farm. At each they recited verses, some of which savored strongly of paganism, and the farmer was expected to donate food. If the farmer donated food, he could expect good fortune from the Makola. Not doing so would bring misfortune. This is akin to the Mari Luid Grey Mare procession in Wales. Some have linked this custom with pagan goddesses of sovereignty who were often associated with white horses. In Scotland, young men went house to house with masked, veiled, painted, or blackened faces, often threatening to do mischief if they were not welcomed. This was common in the 16th century in the Scottish countryside and persisted into the 20th. It is suggested that the blackened faces comes from using the bonfire ashes for protection. Elsewhere in Europe, costumes, mumming, and hobby horses were part of other yearly festivals. However, in the Celtic-speaking regions, they were particularly appropriate to a night upon which supernatural beings were said to be abroad and could be imitated or warded off by human wanderers. When imitating malignant spirits, it was a very short step from guising to playing pranks. Playing pranks at Sawin is recorded in the Scottish Highlands as far back as 1736 and was also common in Ireland, which led to Samhain being nicknamed Mischief Night in some parts. Wearing costumes at Halloween spread to England in the 20th century, as did the custom of playing pranks, though there had been mumming at other festivals. At the time of Mass, transatlantic Irish and Scottish immigration, which popularized Halloween in North America, Halloween in Ireland and Scotland had a strong tradition of guising and pranks. Trick-or-treating may have come from the custom of going door-to-door, collecting food for Samhain feasts, fuel for Samhain bonfires, and or offerings of the Eos Sea. Alternately, it may have come from the All Saints, All Souls custom of collecting soul cakes. Black cats. The ancient Egyptians honored cats of every color. Cats were mighty and strong and held sacred. Two of the most amazing goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon were Bast and Sakmet, worshipped as long as 3000 BCE. Family cats were adorned with jewelry and fancy collars and even had pierced ears. If a cat died, the entire family went into mourning and sent the cat off to the next world with great ceremony. For thousands of years, the cat held a position of divinity in Egypt. Around the time of the Middle Ages, the cat became associated with witches and witchcraft. Around the late 1300s, oh, I'm just going to interject something that I remembered reading somewhere. And why did they become associated with witches? Because the Black Plague had enveloped Europe. 
uh, the Christian priests ordered all of the cats to be killed because saying that they were witches' uh, accomplices. And therefore, uh, the rats that carried the plague ran rampant because the cats were all killed. So it's kind of a plot as I remember it. So. so around the time of the Middle Ages, the cat became associated with witches and witchcraft. Around the late 1300s, a group of witches in France were accused of worshipping the devil in the form of a cat. It may be because of the cat's nocturnal nature that it became connected to witches. After all, nighttime was the time they held their meetings as far as the church was concerned. Black cat folklore and legends. 16th century Italians believed that if a black cat jumped onto the bed of an ill person, the person would die soon. In colonial America, Scottish immigrants believed that a black cat entering a wake was bad luck and could indicate the death of a family member. The Norse goddess Freya drove a chariot pulled by a pair of black cats. A Roman soldier killed a black cat in Egypt and was killed by an angry mob of locals. Appalachian folklore said that if you had a sty on one eyelid, rubbing the tail of a black cat on it would make the sty go away. If you find a single white hair on your otherwise black cat, it's a good omen. In England's border communities and southern Scotland, a strange black cat on the front porch brings good fortune. Witches One thing that is symbolized with Halloween is witches and witchcraft. Up and until the 14th century, witches were actually socially acceptable in the European culture. They were seen as simple, skilled herbalists. This was before the era of doctors. The bark of a willow tree was used for pain relief and fever. Muscle cramps were cured by celery roots. Parsley was used for miscarriage, and ivy was used to relieve asthma. All of these are natural plants found within nature, used for straight natural cures. However, the art of brewing could also be used for a somewhat questionable cause. Coming out of the typical European toad bufotoxin as a cardiac poison, when bufotoxin is mixed with tetradoxin, which disrupts the communication of the brain, it causes coma. Tetradoxin is 500 times more deadly than cyanide. Hundreds of years ago, people could not determine a difference between coma and the death state. It would create quite a scare when someone would dig up the assumed-to-be-dead individual, and he was, in fact, quite alive. The disease of ergo poisoning, E-R-G-O-T, has come to be the main factor in the Salem witch trials. The ergo poison was found in mostly grains and rye. Its effects were manic behavior, hallucinating, throwing up, twitching, severe pain, as well as feeling as if you were burning. One of the main molecules of ergotism is ergotamine. This molecule is used to treat severe headaches. An overdose of ergotamine can cause effects of hallucination and even abortion if consumed while pregnant. The other molecule of ergotism or ergovine, which is illegal in the United Kingdom, ergovine or ergovine, I'm not sure, is used in the production of the drug lysergic acid diethylamide, otherwise known as LSD. 
It has been found in history that the witch was not the one who gave the individuals the ergo poisoning. However, the witch was always the crutch to fall back on for persecution. The biggest time of persecution was in the Reformation period in North America and Europe between 40,000 and 60,000 witches were killed due to their practice, which was not socially acceptable at the time. And I'm going to take a little break and play a bit of music for you. And I hope you enjoy this, and I'll be right back. Close your eyes and breathe deeply. 
Think about who you are and what you are made of and knowing that everything within you is the sum of all of your ancestors. From thousands of years ago, generations of people have come together over the centuries to create the person you are now. Think about your own strengths and weaknesses and remember that they came from somewhere. This is a time to honor the ancestors who formed you. Recite your genealogy aloud if you like. Go far back as you can. As you say each name, describe the person and their life. An example might be something like this. I am the daughter of James, who fought in Vietnam, and returned to tell the tale. James, who was the son of Eldon and Maggie, who met on the battlefield of France, as she nursed him back to health. Eldon was the son of Alice, who sailed aboard the Titanic and survived. Alice was the daughter of Patrick and Molly, who formed the soil of Ireland, who raised horses and tatted lace, and so forth. Go back as far as you like, elaborating with as much detail as you choose. Once you can go back no further, end with, quote, those whose blood runs in me, whose names I do not yet know, end quote. So I think that's actually uh, something that would be wonderful to do uh, at a gathering uh, if there was a feast for Samhain and for the children to learn those things. And uh, I want to touch now, since uh, Samhain is pagan, a Celtic pagan. And by the way, pagan means Gentile. Pagan means Gentile. Paganism is the old religion, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Nowadays, the term pagan had become almost synonymous with devil worship, a gross misconception The word's roots actually reached back to the Latin pegasus, meaning country dwellers. Pagans were literally the undoctrinated country folk who clung to the old rural regions of nature. In fact, so strong was the church's fear of those who lived in the rural villes that the once innocuous word for villager, villain, came to mean a wicked soul. When one defines oneself as pagan, it means she or he follows an earth or nature religion, one that sees the divine manifest in creation. The word pagan comes from the Latin word pagansis, meaning country dweller. However, there is no consensus on the exact modern meaning of the word, and the label of pagan has various meanings to different people. This causes misunderstandings whenever the word is used, as most people assume that the meaning that they have been taught, usually in the context of their religious upbringing, is universally accepted. Therefore, one must judge the meaning implied within the context in which the word is used in order to guess at the intent of its usage. In common modern usage, it may be used in an attempt to stigmatize pagans as being anything from quote, witches to, quote, worshippers of the devil. However, within Western religious societies, the most common interpretation is heathen and or heretic. Those come from the Christ insaners. In its essence, as practiced throughout the world, paganism, in its ancient and traditional sense, is a veneration of nature. It is a spiritual way of life which has its roots in ancient tribal beliefs 
Pagans celebrate the sanctity of nature. Pagans see the divine in every tree, in every plant, and in the dark side of life as much as in the light. Pagans live their lives attuned to the cycles of nature of life and death. Paganism is tribal in essence as the old religion or old ways of a local homeland. All pagan beliefs form a connection and reverence for their, quote, local natural environment. Pagans see this as their spiritual heritage and maintain the beliefs and traditions of their ancestors. If we are to cast any light on the origins of paganism, we have to go down into the darkness, deep into the ancient caves and look upon the prehistoric cave paintings. There we find recorded the images drawn by early humans. When we go down into those caves today with our floodlights, we see them as works of art. But those ancient artists deep in the earth, working by the dancing light of their fires, were really composing prayers. These ancient drawings were of the animals that the early humans not only hunted as food, but also venerated as spirits, and their presence in the land meant the difference between life and death to the people. In time, these early humans came to associate the appearance of these animals with the changing of the seasons, and in time, the seasons with the movements of the sun and the moon, and with this association came the awareness of the cycles of nature. Before long, early humans began to comprehend that there was something big, something, quote, magical going on, and with that awareness came a desire to be part of that magic. In reverence of nature's wonders, the ancients told stories and painted pictures of the strange, mystical events they experienced, and they sang and danced in celebration of these wonders. More importantly, in creating this art of myth and legend as expressed with ritual, they were creating a language through which they might be able to communicate with the magical forces of nature, and they were seeking to emulate it was in those ancient deep dark caves that we find the first Gospels of the Old Religion. Unlike the patriarchal religions of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, the divine is expressed in female as well as in the male. There is both the goddess as well as the god. The goddess represents all that is female, and the god represents all that is male, and these dualities are within all creation as well. Therefore, the pagan view of the universe is one of complementary opposites, of male and female, of light and dark, of yin and yang. The gods of the major religions are above nature, but the pagan gods and goddesses are nature. Within paganism, the goddess has the meaning as Mother Earth. The goddess she is seen as the creatrix and the mother of all she creates. The goddess is seen as the creatrix that maintains the life force as the form of the maiden, mother, and crone as of the three faces of the moon. Women were the great goddesses, earthly guardians. In the ancient goddess clans, women were therefore the goddesses' earthly guardians. Perhaps this is why the term pagan still brings fear to the minds of many Christians and other people in the sub-Abrahamic cultures. Within these cultures, power has shifted to the male as rulers and priests, enforcing their power and eradicating the priestess and her goddess image. Paganism was the enemy and, in the eyes of the Church, needed to be exterminated. The Church of Rome set out to eradicate paganism, 
and pagans themselves by building up an image of evil around pagans so that even today ordinary people think pagans and or witches perform evil spells and rituals in the name of a dark master in the name of Satan. Quote, unquote. The Christian Church developed this concept of Lucifer, the fallen angel, and Satan was officially adopted by the Christian Church as the year 447 and the pogrom against the enemy of God was legitimized and the genocide of the pagan people began. There were just some goblins screaming outside. I heard them, (laughs) and they scared me. Demonization of the pagan religion. Though the church was willing to expunge the concept of nature and the goddess from the minds of man, it was not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater, and it incorporated vast elements of the pagan religion within its own ritual structure. The Christian fear of the pagan outlook has damaged the whole consciousness of man. And that's a quote by D.H. Lawrence. Anyone brought up in the Catholic Church structure would immediately recognize the ritual items of the Catholic Church upon observing pagan ceremonies. The vestments, the chalice, and the censor are all derived from ancient pagan rituals, and even the folk traditions of everything from the Christmas tree to the Easter bunny come from pagan folklore long before the time of Christ. The Church also absorbed the pagan celebrations and disguised them as their own, As to the accusation of pagans worshipping Satan, it has no basis, in fact, within the concept of the pagan religion. The pagan view of the universe is one of complementary opposites of yin and yang, of the male and female. The major patriarchal religions have a view of antagonistic opposites of good and evil, of God and Satan. Pagans have no concept of the intrinsic sinful nature of man, and therefore Satan to tempt man is sin. Therefore, the pagan religions have no such concept of Satan. Satan is a Judeo-Christian belief system because it is anti-God or anti-Christ figure of that system. Therefore, Satanists would be, in a sense, followers of the Judeo-Christian belief system because they worship an anti-God figure which belongs to that system and not of pagan belief system at all. Uh, I pulled this up quick and, and I'm not going to say that I agree with everything here, but I've edited out some things, but I will continue. So what then are the basic beliefs of the pagans? Like the name pagan itself, there is no consensus on the exact practice of the pagan lifestyle. And unlike religions of Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, there is no one set universal dogma that attaches itself to pagan religion. There is a great variety of tradition within the practice of paganism throughout the world. To the pagans, each person should find their spirituality according to the dictates of their own soul. Pagans celebrate their divinity and for this reason do not proselytize or seek converts from other faiths and from society in general. Beliefs are based upon direct perception of the forces of nature and their beliefs and practices convey respect for those forces and beings. What most pagans share in common is an abiding respect for nature a respect for the traditions of their ancestral heritage, and there is a strong sense of community and guardianship for the care of the earth. Children are loved and honored and encouraged to celebrate the natural cycles of nature throughout the year. To the traditional pagan, there is no, quote, one right way to believe, or the core of paganism, there are basic beliefs that pagans share. The divine principle is present in nature and in each one of us. 
The divine principle is represented by both male and female, the goddess and the god, the yin and yang. Pagans believe strongly in the balance of harmony of these dualities and that they must address the imbalances encountered and bring them into balance. Like most religions, pagans celebrate rituals marking changes and events in life. Rituals can be ceremonies of celebration or a way of honoring the deities and thanking them for their blessings. In the pagan calendar, there are usually eight major holy days or Sabbaths relating to the cycles of nature. The major pagan Sabbaths or festivals are determined by the position of the sun and moon within the agricultural year, which ordained the days when one should plant or harvest, breed animals, or kill livestock. These festivals were usually celebrated on the evening preceding the festival day, for the night was seen as belonging to the next day. The day was traversed from sunset to sunset. Paganism and Witchcraft To most people unfamiliar with the subject, the word paganism and witchcraft are synonymous, however, while some pagans are witches, most are not. Witches, like shamans, are practitioners of specific rituals and traditions within the general framework of the tribal pagan experience. Witchcraft is the name that was used by the Christian Church to stigmatize the practitioners of the old religions. It is the continuation of the practices of the native spiritual and cultural beliefs of Europeans and others that existed prior to the advent of Christ insanity. The witch is a practitioner of a paganistic lifestyle, but the paths, traditions that individual witches follow often vary widely. A witch will follow the principles and beliefs of the pagan philosophy, but not according to any set parochial dogmas. A witch's individual path comes from the epiphany of their own individual experience and given their own talents. Witchcraft is considered a religion, however, that classification is more a legal label rather than a definition of witchcraft as a congregational approach to spirituality. And there's a section on neo-paganism. I'll just touch on that very briefly. Neo-paganism is an umbrella term used to describe a wide variety of modern religious movements that profess to a revival of ancient, mostly European, and mostly pre-Christian religious, and the term provides a means of distinguishing between historical pagans of ancient cultures and the adherents of modern religious movements. As the name implies, these religions are paganistic in nature but their relationship to older forms of paganism is the source of much controversy. Many neo-pagans practice a spirituality that is entirely modern in origin and found almost exclusively in the industrialized Western countries where tribal connections have been severed. While some neo-pagans attempt to accurately reconstruct or revive indigenous ethnic religions as found in historic and folkloric sources, However, while neo-pagans draw from old religious traditions, most claims of continuity between neo-paganisms and older forms of paganism have been shown to be spurious and often outright forgeries. While ancient traditional paganism tends to represent the local tribal beliefs and customs of the indigenous people, neo-paganism is often an amalgamation, reconstructionist approach to legitimizing modern and dogmatic religions It is this attempt to establish universal set dogma to the pagan ideal, along with the hegemony of priests, priestesses, and adepts, that the main conflict between pagans and neo-pagans at the idea of a hierarchical body 
that claims to hold the power to sanctify any individual's spiritual path and growth is an anathema to the basic core of traditional pagan beliefs. It is also unnerving to many pagans, especially those who consider themselves traditional witches, that Wicca's objective of attempting to establish an authoritarian hegemony of witchcraft is eerily similar to the early Roman Christian Church's usurpation of Christianity into dictative body, which eventually tolerated no dissent from its dogmatic proclamations and met any free-thinking opposition with merciless opposition. Wicca, which was founded by Gerald Gardner in the 1950s, is the most well-known and popular of the neo-pagan religions. Although initially Wicca was based more on magical pursuits, it has since developed into more of a New Age spiritual movement. As a movement, Wicca can be seen as an eclectic system of beliefs with an underlying static ritual and a shifting ethics base. Wicca, the old English word for wizard, is primarily an organized religion that emphasizes the role of witchcraft and ritual. It is an approach to spirituality that emphasizes a doctrinal set of principles and practices promulgated by an established hegemony with a structured form of ritual initiation or rite of passage within the laws of the coven or congregation. Wiccans practice what are fairly fundamentalist set of rituals which are administrated by a set lineage of high priests and priestesses. The Gardnerian movement, or Wicca, came out of a mass media spiritual revival campaign led by founder Gerald Gardner in Europe in the 1950s. This new religion has lost credibility among traditional witches who see it as promoting the idea of weekend witchcraft and not an absolute and unmitigated dedication to a life in the old ways. Wicca, since its inception, has broken off into several different movements, Asatru. Asatru is frequently regarded as one of the neo-pagan family of religions, which includes Wicca, Druidism, and recreations of Egyptian, Greek, Roman, and other ancient pagan religions. However, many Asatruers prefer the term heathen or pagan rather than neo-pagan. They look upon their tradition as not just a branch on the neo-pagan tree, but as a separate tree. Unlike Wicca, which has gradually evolved into many different traditions, the reconstruction of Asatru has been based on the surviving historical record. Its followers have maintained it as closely as possible to the original religion of the Norse people. And apparently the National Socialist Party did some work with Asatru as well. There's no elaboration here. Cunning Folk The term cunning man or cunning woman was most widely used in southern England, the Midlands, and in Wales. Such people were also frequently known as wizards, wise men, or wise women, or conjurers. In Cornwall, they were sometimes referred to as pellars, P-E-L-L-A-R-S, which originated from the term expellers, referring to the practice of expelling evil spirits. Folklorists often use the term white witch, though this is infrequently used amongst the ordinary folk as the term white witch had general evil connotations. The relationship between cunning craft and witchcraft is controversial. The original cunning folk were oftentimes witch hunters, condemning an individual as a witch responsible for some evil or affliction, and cunning crafters were called upon to perform curses 
against the supposed offender. Today, Cornish witches are often mistakenly referred to as cunning folk. Druidry. In the Celtic religion, the modern words druid or druidism denote the practices of the ancient druids, the priestly class in ancient Britain and Gaul. The historical knowledge of the druids is very limited, as no druidic documents have survived. Julius Caesar's The Gaelic Wars gives the fullest account of the ancient druids and he describes the Druids as the learned priestly class who were guardians of the unwritten ancient customary law and who had the power of executing judgment. To most people today, the Druids conjure up images of a mysterious religious sect wearing strange robes and conducting archaic ceremonies out in the open air at Stonehenge. However, archaeologists have shown that Stonehenge was built over a period of centuries from 2800 B.C. to 1550 B.C., long before the arrival of the ancient Celts, and there is no evidence that the ancient Druids ever used Stonehenge. Modern Druidism, or Neo-Druidism, came out of the Romanticism movement of the 18th century and is thought to have some, though not many, connections to the old religion, instead being based largely on writings produced during and after the 18th century, from second-hand stories and theories. Nature spirits. To those who have animistic practices or inclinations, each plant, each animal, and even every rock has a spirit, and these spirits joining together as a body of water or attractive land become the elemental energies of the ecology. Nature spirits are incorporeal beings from non-material dimensions, that employ these elemental energies of the earth in order to bring themselves into manifestation in the material world. Mother Earth abounds with these beings, each type having its own special function to perform, and the nature spirits are involved in every aspect of life. Throughout the world, there are folk tales and fairy tales regarding these creatures and the divine forests and sacred waters that they protect and sanctify and their interactions with the humans who enter into these realms. Different people have different names for the nature spirits, such as the Irish Sidde and the German Kobold, K-O-B-O-L-D. And some of the English language names you may be familiar with include Bogarts, Brownies, Elves, Goblins, Fairies, Fawns, Gnomes, Leprechauns, Nymphs, Pixies, and Trolls, among many others. Nature spirits are also called divas or shining ones because of the light they radiate when they manifest into our world. Sometimes in these folk tales, the nature spirit appears in the stories as a sort of spirit guide, helping the hero who enters their realm upon some sacred quest. Where they differ from spirit guides is that their main concern is not for the seeker on his journey, but for preserving the spiritual essence of area through which he travels, and the nature spirit may try to obstruct the hero in his quest if he is seen as a threat to the sanctity of the area. From a scientific viewpoint, these spirits seem to behave in a similar manner to the way we understand atomic particles to behave, moving backwards and forwards in time and space, fluctuating between energy and matter. The theories of quantum physics suggest the possibility possibility of alternate universes and multiple dimensions from which these spirits could be originating and these spirits may embody a quantum mind wherein what we would describe as forms of energy 
may have a conscious awareness and be able to interact with the different dimensions or even different universes. These spirits cannot be directly observed any more than atomic particles can be observed that can only be discerned by the energy footprints they leave, like the glow of fairies in the garden. The elemental nature spirits, all things in the material world are made up of four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, and contain the nature spirits of these elements within them. These are the nature spirits that interact with the material world but have their existence in non-material beyond the plane of existence. When the spirit consciousnesses descend into boundaries of the realm into the material world, they manifest in the matter of physical existence within the boundaries of the world into which they settle. In earth, it becomes a gnome. In water, it becomes an undine. In fire, it becomes a salamander. In air, it becomes a sliff. Each of these elements has a distinctive and important part to play in the creation and maintenance of life within the natural world. Sip of tea. Earth element. Gnomes. Earth spirits maintain the physical earth and they give us the basic energy of life in its rawest form and they aid in maintaining the physical realm of the earth. Thus, when they meet a human, they take a human form. Though short, stocky, and thick-set due to their earthly nature, they help us to become more aware, but remember that they can be tricksters as well. Water element, undines. Water spirits are found in nature, sources of water such as rivers, springs, and the ocean. The water spirits govern magnetism and chemistry, and they stimulate our emotions and spiritual impulses. They first appear as a blur of color, but as they manifest, they take their form from our imaginations and often appear mermaid-like. They are infinitely sensual, something to keep in mind if you encounter them. They are usually found in forest pools and waterfalls. They have beautiful voices that can be heard over the sound of water. In some legends, undines cannot get a soul unless they marry a man and bear him a child which often leads to romantic but tragic consequences. Air elements, slips, S-Y-L-P-H-S. Air spirits are found in any motion of air, from a, from a light breeze to a tornado. They are composed entirely from wind and thought, and they are the source of all life energy. Sometimes they are depicted as cloud beings. Slips are responsible for the myths of angels, the winged protectors of the Garden of Eden, and they defend the high mountain peaks that are their home. Mercurial and intense, they assist humans to develop mental abilities and inspiration. Fire element, salamanders. Fire spirits are everywhere, and they will often first appear as sudden bursts of heat. But when manifest, they take the form of the lizard of the same name. They are responsible for all light, heat, and strong, powerful emotions that drive the will. Salamanders are called upon to assist in magic, can have a very profound effect upon human nature, and while helpful in stimulating energies, fire spirits can be temperamental and impulsive. I was going to do tree spirits. Very interesting. Maybe I can use that somewhere else. And now, children, it's time for a bedtime Sawin story. The title of the story is The Jew in the Thorns by the Brothers Grimm. Not your typical fairy tale. 
Once upon a time, there was a rich man who had a servant who served him diligently and honestly. Every morning, he was the first one out of bed, and at night, the last one to go to bed. Whenever there was a difficult job that nobody wanted to do, he was always first to volunteer. He never complained at any of this, but was content with everything and always happy. When his year was over, his master gave him no wages, thinking, This is the smartest thing to do, for it will save me something. He won't leave me, but will gladly stay here working for me. The servant said nothing, but did his work the second year, as he had done before. And when, at the end of this year, he again received no wages, he still stayed on without complaining. When the third year had passed, the master thought it over, then put his hand into his pocket, but pulled out nothing. However, this time the servant said, Master, I have served you honestly for three years. Be so good as to give me what by rights I have coming to me. I would like to be on my way and see something else of the world. Yes, my good servant, answered the old miser. You have served me without complaint, and you shall be kindly rewarded. With this, he put his hand into his pocket, then counted out three hellers, one at a time, saying, There, you have a heller for each year. That is a large and generous reward. Only a few masters would pay you this much. The good servant, who understood little about money, put his wealth into his pocket and thought, Oh, now that I have a full purse, why should I worry and continue to plague myself with hard work? So he set forth, uphill and down, singing and jumping for joy. Now it came to pass that he was passing by a thicket. A little dwarf stepped out and called to him, Where are you headed, Brother Mary? You don't seem to be burdened down with cares. Why should I be, said the servant. I have everything I need. Three years' wages are jingling in my pocket. How much is your treasure? The dwarf asked him. How much? Three hellers in real money, precisely counted. Listen, said the dwarf. I'm a poor and needy man. Give me your three hellers. I can no longer work. But you are young and can easily earn your bread. Now because the servant had a good heart, and felt pity for the dwarf, he gave him his three hellers, saying, In God's name, I won't miss them. Then the dwarf said, Because I see that you have a good heart, I will grant you three wishes, one for each heller. They shall all be fulfilled. Aha, said the servant, You are a miracle worker. Well then, if it be so, First of all, I wish for a blowpipe that will hit everything I aim at. Second, for a fiddle that when I play it, anyone who hears it will have to dance. And third, that whatever I ask a favor of anyone, it will be granted. You shall have all that, said the dwarf. He reached into the bush, and what do you think? There lay a fiddle and a blowpipe, all ready just as if they had been ordered. He gave them to the servant, saying, No one will ever be able to deny any request that you might make. 
What more could my heart desire, said the servant to himself, and went merrily on his way. Soon afterward, he met a Jew with a long goatee, who was standing listening to a bird singing high up in the top of a tree. One of God's own miracles, he shouted, that a small creature should have such a fearfully loud voice, if only it were mine. If only someone would sprinkle some salt on its tail. If that is all you want, said the servant, then the bird shall soon be down here. He took aim, hit it precisely, and the bird fell down into a thorn hedge. Rogue, he said to the Jew, go and fetch the bird out for yourself. My goodness, said the Jew, don't call me a rogue, sir, but I will be the dog and get the bird out for myself. After all, you're the one who shot it. Then he lay down on the ground and began crawling into the thicket. When he was in the middle of the thorns, the good servant could not resist the temptation to pick up his fiddle and begin to play. The Jew's legs immediately began to move, and he jumped up. The more the servant fiddled, the better went the dance. However, the thorns ripped apart the Jew's shabby coat, combed his beard and pricked and pinched him all over his body. My goodness, cried the Jew. What do I want with your fiddling? Stop playing, sir. I don't want to dance. But the servant did not listen to him and thought, You have fleeced many people often enough, and now the thorn hedge shall do the same to you. He began to play all over again, so that the Jew had to jump even higher, leaving scraps from his coat hanging on the thorns. Oh, woe is me, cried the Jew. I will give the gentleman anything he asks, if only he quits fiddling, even a purse filled with gold. If you are so generous, said the servant, then I will stop my music. But I must praise the singular way that you dance to it. Then he took his purse and went on his way. The Jew stood there quietly watching the servant until he was far off and out of sight. And then he screamed out with all his might, You miserable musician, you beer-house fiddler, wait until I catch you alone. I will chase you until you wear the soles off your shoes. You ragamuffin, just got a Goshen in your mouth so that you will be worth six hellers. He continued to curse as fast as he could speak. As soon as he had thus refreshed himself a little, he caught his breath again and ran into town to get the judge. Judge, sir, he said. Oh, woe is me. See how a godless man has robbed me and abused me on the open road. A stone on the ground would feel sorry for me. My clothes are ripped to shreds. My body is pricked and scratched to pieces. And what little I owned has been taken away with my purse. Genuine ducats, each piece more beautiful than the others. For God's sakes, let the man be thrown into prison. The judge asked, Was it a soldier who cut you up like that with his saber? God forbid, said the Jew. He didn't have a naked dagger, but rather a blowpipe hanging from his back and a fiddle from his neck. The scoundrel can easily be recognized. The judge sent his people out after him. They found the good servant who had been walking along quite slowly, and they found the purse with the money on him as well, 
When he was brought before the judge, he said, I did not touch the Jew, nor take his money. He offered it to me freely, so that I would stop fiddling, because he could not stand my music. God forbid, cried the Jew. He is reaching for lies, like flies on the wall. The judge did not believe his story and said, That is a poor excuse. No Jew would do that. And because he had committed robbery on the open road, the good servant was sentenced to the gallows. As he was being led away, the Jew screamed after him, You good for nothing, you dog of a musician. Now you will receive your well-earned reward. The servant walked quietly up the ladder with the hangman. But on the last rung, he turned around and said to the judge, Grant me just one request before I die. Yes, said the judge, if you do not ask for your life. I do not ask for life, answered the servant, but let me play my fiddle one last time. The Jew cried out miserably, For God's sakes, do not allow it. Do not allow it. But the judge said, Why should I not grant him this short pleasure? It has been promised to him, and he shall have it. In any event, he could not have refused because of the gift that had been bestowed on the servant. The Jew cried, Oh, woe is me! Tie me up! Tie me up tightly! The good servant took his fiddle from his neck and made ready. As he played the first stroke, they all began to quiver and shake. The judge, the clerks, and the court officials. The rope fell out of the hand of the one who was going to tie up the Jew. At the second stroke, they all lifted their legs. The hangman released the good servant and made ready to dance. At the third stroke, everyone jumped up and began to dance. The judge and the Jew were out in front and were the best at jumping. Soon, everyone who had gathered in the marketplace out of curiosity was dancing with them, old and young, fat and thin, all together with each other. Even the dogs that had run along with the crowd stood up on their hind legs and hopped along as well. The longer he played, the higher the dancers jumped, until they were knocking their heads together and crying out terribly. Finally, the judge, quite out of breath, shouted, I will give you your life, but just stop fiddling. The good servant listened to this, then took his fiddle, hung it around his neck, and climbed down the ladder. He went up to the Jew, who was lying upon the ground, gasping for air, and said, You rogue, now confess where you got the money, or I will take my fiddle off my neck and begin to play again. I stole it, I stole it, he cried but you have honestly earned it. With that, the judge had the Jew led to the gallows and hanged as a thief. The end. And with that, I say good night to all of you kind listeners out there. I wish you a very happy Samhain, and I look forward to seeing you again on Moon Day next week. And remember the 14 words. Rahua.
Tenía 